0: Recently, my nine year old daughter Lilia asked me, Dad, what did you want to be when you grew up? And I thought about it for a moment. And my earliest memories is I wanted to be a professional athlete. I loved baseball as a kid, I loved basketball when I was in high school. So, growing up, I wanted to be a professional athlete. Imagine my disappointment when I learned that you had to be athletic to be a professional athlete. And uh, so I moved on from that. my, my, my daughter Lilia, who asked the question, she actually, when she grows up, she already knows what she wants to be as a nine year old. She wants to be an author. She wants to write books, which is actually somewhat likely because she comes from a family of writers, and she's very good already at writing. She has a very remarkable mind for plot and character development. She's a good writer, so I think it's, it's likely. Now, uh, by comparison, my nephew, Jared, when he was little, my quarter Korean nephew, Jared, when you asked him what he wanted to be when he grew up, he would say he wanted to be Chinese. <laughs> which was not as likely. <laughs> Kids have some funny answers. You know, as, as soon as a kid can talk, they are bombarded with that question, aren't they? What do you want to be when you grow up? And even the way that we word that question is so telling. What do you want to be? And what we're really saying is that as a society, we believe that your work equates to your identity. What you do is Who you are. There is a connection between worth and work in the eyes of our society. And this can be true whether it's the work you're paid to do, whether it's volunteer work, housework, yard work, work you do for fun, for recreation. Work takes up a vast amount of our time and our energy and our resources. Work is a really big deal. And right at the beginning of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible has some very profound, interesting far-reaching things to say about work. And we're going to learn three things about work this morning from Genesis chapter 2. The first thing we're going to learn is why we work. Secondly, we're going to learn how we get work wrong. And then lastly, we're going to learn how we can get work right. So let's talk first about why we work. Verse 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2 reads this way. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So this is the end of the creation week. We talked about creation last Sunday morning. Verse 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, this is so obvious, but I think we miss it. In Genesis 1 and 2, in creation, we see God working. We see God at work. In fact, in just two verses that I read, three different times you see the word work pop up. So what's interesting is is that the first way that God chooses to reveal himself to his people through scripture is that he is a God at work. Well, what type of work is God doing here in Genesis 1 and 2? And I got a list of things here that I think this describes the type of work that God is doing creative, intellectual. Verbal, he's speaking, thinking, constructive, construction, thoughtful, communicative, manual labor, organizational, practical, beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, productive, providing substance, providing a place for flourishing, work that is interconnected in a supportive, life-giving manner. The work that we see God doing here is he is creating for the good of the rest of creation. God is a worker. God is working. Okay, so what does that have to do with you and me? Well, let's keep reading. In verse five, it says this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man or no human to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living creature. This is the Christian's explanation for uh, existence of humankind. And then in verse 15, let's skip down to verse 15, it says this, the Lord God took the man or took the human and put him in the garden of Eden. Why? To work it and keep it. Now why were, we, why were we created? If you ask most people in the Christian faith, why were we created? They will say something like this, well we were created to worship God. That's why we were created. And it's not untrue, but you know one of the songs that we sang, in fact the last song that we sang this morning, did you notice the opening lines of the chorus? It said, raise your hands all you nations. And then what was the second line? Shout to God all creation. Now if that should have given you pause. You should have been like, wait a minute, creation, how can creation shout? Trees don't have mouths, flowers can't yell. How does creation worship? And we learned throughout all of scripture that creation is, all of creation exists to worship God. Well, how does creation worship? Creation, trees, plants, animals, anything, it worships God by being what it was created to be and doing what it was created to do. So when a flower blooms in the spring, it's, it's shouting out worship to God. Not, of course, literally shouting, but it's pointing to a creator. It's pointing to a designer. Its very beauty gives credit to the one who designed it. And so if all of creation exists to worship, then what's unique about humankind's role in creation? Yes, we were created to worship, but what is the unique quality and contribution of humanity as the only image bearers of God in all of creation, and it's this. We were created to work as God worked, to work. Humankind was created to work in creation, work on creation, work over creation, work with creation, and work for the good of creation, and to do it in a way that reflects our creator God. So when God says to Adam, I want you to work and keep and tend the garden, here's what he's doing. He's given him a mandate to be a culture maker. He's saying you take the raw materials and the raw components found in creation and discover them, develop them, improve upon them, build them for the glory of God and for the good of others. And we do that, don't we? Writers in this room, you take words and ideas and paper and pen and the gift of your imagination and you create a story. Carpenters take wood and metal and tools and the skill of their hands and they create maybe a table a chef can take the four ingredients of flour, eggs, salt, water, and presto, 15 minutes later, fresh what? Pasta. That seems impressive, right? I can take the raw ingredients of my phone and my credit card, and 30 minutes later, pizza and wings at my door, presto. It's not, it's not, that, it's not really that impressive. But this is, this is taking the, the, raw, the raw things in nature and making something out of it. So one of the primary reasons we've been created as humans is to work. Isn't it interesting that the biblical story, which is our story, it begins in a garden, but where does it end? It ends in the city So the story of the Bible begins in the garden, but it ends in a city. You know what's significant about that? It suggests something very significant. It suggests that we live in a world that is in process. We live in a world that's under development, a world that's heading somewhere and towards something. How do you get from a garden that needs to be tended to a city that defies human explanation? Work and lots of it. What this all means is that as those who bear God's image, work is not just an act of obedience, but work is necessary for our personal fulfillment and for the flourishing of the rest of creation. So that is why we work. Now, secondly this morning, how do we get work wrong? And there's actually two ways that we get work wrong. They are equal but opposite errors And they have major implications in our lives. They have the power to actually sap every last bit of meaning and joy out of our lives if we get this wrong. And the two errors are this. We either endure work or we adore work. We endure it or we adore it. Let me talk first about how we endure work. You know, the average American spends over 80,000 hours at work In his or her lifetime. According to a recent ABC News report, Americans now work more than any other industrialized country in the world, more than any country in Europe, and just recently even more than countries like Japan. Now there are people who debate the validity of this study because it's self-reporting, but even if it's not true, the exaggerated self-reporting, doesn't that reveal something about how Americans think about work, that they would exaggerate how much they work? So some people love their jobs and some people hate them. In the movie Office Space, the main character, Peter, vents to his psychotherapist about how much he hates his job, and he says this, so I was sitting in my cubicle today and I realized ever since I started working, every single day of my life has been worse than the day before it. So that means that every single day that you see me, that's the worst day of my life. I'd say in a given week, i probably do about 15 minutes of real, actual work. Now, don't raise your hand if you can, uh, if if you only do 15 minutes of real, actual work, but it's funny, but it's sadly true for many people. For many people, work doesn't feel meaningful. It's just literally about getting a paycheck. It has no meaning and no purpose to it. It's mundane. If you could find any other way to survive without working, you would. We reduce work to something that we have to do and we lose sight of the connection between everyday work and what it means to glorify and honor and image our God. James Hamilton, in his very helpful book, "Work in Our Labor in the Lord," said this: "Work is neither punishment nor cursed drudgery, but an exalted, godlike activity." The whole name of this series is "Before the fall." Work existed before the fall. Sometimes we think, well, work must be because of the fall. Because man sinned, we got to do work. It, and way to go, Adam and Eve. No. Work existed before the fall. And if that's true, then this is true. Work is not punishment. And work should not be cursed drudgery. But it's a God-like activity. You might be wondering, okay, so, but does my personal work matter? Does my job matter? Is it meaningful? In, in a very helpful article that Scott Sauls wrote, he answers that question. He says this, any kind of work that leaves people, places, or things in better shape than before, any kind of work that helps the city of man become more like the city of God, where truth, beauty, goodness, order, and justice reign is work that should be celebrated as good. Any sort of work that leaves people, places, or things better. And then he goes on to make the point that when our work leaves people, places, and things better than we found them, we are imaging God to the world around us. He gives us these quick examples. He says, mothers image the nurture of God. Artists and entrepreneurs image the creativity of God. Government leaders and business executives image the rule of God, the reign of God. Healthcare professionals and counselors, the healing hand of God. Educators, the wisdom and knowledge of God. Nonprofit workers, the mercy of God. Fashion inventors and stylists and artists, the beauty of God. Marketers and advisors, the evangelistic energy of God. Authors and storytellers and filmmakers, the drama of God. What makes our work good is that it's done in a way that reflects how God works. Now, earlier I listed some different ways that I saw God working in Genesis chapter one. Let me list it again for you, but this time when I go through the list, I want you to think of your job, your work, what do you do on a daily basis? And whether it's the work you're paid for, volunteer work, yard work, housework, whatever the work is in your life, and listen to how God works in Genesis 1 and 2. And I think as you hear this list a second time, you're gonna begin to identify your work somewhere in this. Creative, intellectual, verbal, thinking, constructive, construction, thoughtful, communicative, manual labor, organizational, practical, beautiful, making things that are aesthetically pleasing, productive, providing substance, providing a place for flourishing, work that is interconnected in a supportive, life-giving manner. Can you see your work somehow connected to any of that? And I think in most cases, you should, because good work provides for others, it blesses others, it meets the needs of others, and it makes life possible for others. You are, many of you are in jobs that do those things, I and mean, I would argue that all of you are in jobs that do those things. In Jeremiah, there's a very interesting interaction between the prophet and the people of God. The people of God are refugees in a nation where they are being really enslaved and overrun. And they have a promise from God that someday God's gonna get them out of there and bring them back to their homeland. And so their whole mentality is, let's just wait it out. Let's just wait it out. And Jeremiah gives God's word to them. It's in Jeremiah, I'm not gonna have you open it up, but in Jeremiah 29:7, he basically says this, hey, don't just wait around to get out of there. Work for the good of the city. Have families, build homes, plant gardens, Work for the good of the city. And sometimes Christians have this mentality I'm just going to sit, I'm just going to wait around until I get out of here because there's heaven waiting for me. So I'm just going to bunker down and just kind of huddle up and just try and survive until heaven and this world's going to be gone and it doesn't matter. And you know what God is saying to us through his prophet Jeremiah? You got to work for the good of the city. You're not just here to get out of here. We're here to image God in a way that creates and develops and discovers and we should leave things better than we found them. This quote for a long time has been wrongly attributed to Martin Luther. I don't actually know who said it, but it's a great quote. It says, the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on shoes, but by, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Sometimes in the church, we've, we've said your work is only good if it serves, serves a utilitarian purpose for evangelism. So in other words, if you're, if you're a, an author, you have to write evangelistic books that people can get saved reading. Well, what about authors that just write beautiful stories? What about authors that write amazing stories that capture our hearts and capture our imaginations and make us wonder? We've told our musicians, all your songs have got to say X, Y, and Z. What about just creating great music? In doing that, we image God, actually. And sometimes I think we actually don't do a great job imaging God when we try to determine the outcome of art before we've even begun the process. It's not just the product that glorifies God. It's the process that glorifies God. And so here we are, you know, a shoemaker creating shoes, thinking I'm going to, I'm going to be a Christian shoemaker by putting little crosses on all of my shoes. And really, if you, if you understand how God feels about work, the best thing you can do is make the best shoes anybody's ever worn because God loves good craftsmanship. And guess what else? Your neighbor needs good shoes. I walked around Disney World two days in a row without good shoes and then spent a time in a wheelchair in JFK because of that. I I know the value. That's not, I didn't make that up. That happened. One of the most embarrassing moments of my life. But good shoes matter, right? So probably no shoemakers in this room. I guess I don't know. Maybe there are shoemakers. But I thought about some of the different jobs in this room. I don't know all of your jobs, but let me just go through some of the jobs uh, and careers that I know exist in this room this morning. I know there are at least three published authors in this room, uh, and I know there are artists. So if you do that, this is what you're doing. That is God-like work. You're creating worlds, You're capturing imaginations. You're helping us to see truth and beauty in the form of a story. You're you're telling stories. If you're in education, you're shaping minds. You're shaping values. You're shaping hearts. You're creating wonder in the hearts of young children. If you're in healthcare, you are extending God's healing hand and you are staying close to those in their time of pain. If you're in construction or manual labor, you're planning and building like God did in creation. You're providing shelter for people who need it. If you're in transportation, I know that there are many in here who are in transportation, in different ways. You're helping children and adults arrive safely to places like school and work where they can learn and grow and contribute and become a better version of themselves. And by the way, for, for those of you that are in this field of transportation, your kind word and your smile to a child or to a teenager or to an adult, it may be the only kind word or smile they hear and see all day. And God will use you military and government, you're working for peace and order in our society. God is a God of order. We talked about that last week. If you're in law enforcement or if you're in the law, you're protecting people. You're fighting for justice. God is a God of justice. If you're in management, you're bringing organizational oversight and you're helping people thrive and discover their gifts and in, in their job, in their place of work. If you're in race, waste removal and janitorial work, you are definitely leaving things better then you found them and you're bringing order and cleanliness. If you're a business owner or an entrepreneur, you're creating jobs for people. You're creating jobs for the community. You're helping the local economy. If you're in sales, you're helping people see the value of products that can meet their needs. If you're a stay-at-home mom, you do everything I just listed and more. (laughs) And this is also true, by the way, of the work you don't get paid to do. Housework, yard work, schoolwork, creative work, recreational work. So what does this all mean? First off, it means your work matters. And how you do your work matters even more. Because I have to say this, not all work is good. Not all work images God. There is work out there that harms. There is work out there that kills There's work out there. There's a way you can do your work that's dishonest, that cheats others, that takes advantage of others, that is self-serving, that is destructive to creation, that doesn't make the best of what you're given, right? There is that sort of work out there. For example, an overcooked steak. Terrible, sinful, (laughs) sinful, (laughs) sinful work. It's not how God created it to be. This also means that you can glorify God at your workplace, not just in church. I hope you know that. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul says, Whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. So whatever job you have, you can do it for God's glory. And then also, this, this is a, maybe a next-level implication, but I want to say it. There's no divide between the sacred and the secular when it comes to work, according to the Bible. Don't think of your Monday to Friday job as mundane and meaningless and disconnected from your spirituality. And then think of what you do on Sunday mornings inside the church as your real ministry or your real spiritual work, it's all work, it's all ministry, and it can all be done in a way that worships and honors God. Okay, so we don't endure work. Why? Because work is good. It's part of God's plan. But the other error that we make sometimes is instead of enduring work, we adore work. We adore work. We, we worship work. We, we live to work. We make our whole lives about work. And I know maybe you're thinking, that that's a weird phrase, adore work, worship work. You know, historically, If you really wanted to know what somebody worshipped, you know what you paid attention to? Who or what they sacrificed to. That's the way people worshipped for many, many years. I know we've evolved beyond animal sacrifice and that sort of thing. But if you want to know who someone worships, you still pay attention to the exact same thing today. What sacrifices are they making? And to who? People sacrifice for work. And sometimes it's an indicator that they adore work. They sacrifice their own health. To work. They sacrifice their happiness to be in a job that's not fulfilling, but it gets more money into their bank account. They sacrifice their emotional well being. Some people sacrifice relationships. Some people lay their family on the altar of work. Some people sacrifice their marriage. They can't be married and work, and they choose work over marriage. Some people sacrifice their character, their integrity. And then some people sacrifice their very lives. I mean, we have a saying for it in our vocabulary you work yourself to death. And you know, the Japanese actually have had to create a word called kuroshi, which literally means to die at your desk. They've had to add that word to the vocabulary because of the work rate of many Japanese people. So when work, think about your work. When your work is central to your sense of self, when your work is the only place you look for meaning and purpose, it's your true God. You adore it. You worship it. And here's the biggest problem. It controls you. On March 2nd, 1962, Wilt Chamberlain played one of the most famous professional basketball games ever. And what makes it so special is that on that night in Hershey, Pennsylvania, he scored 100 points by himself. There are NBA teams that can't score 100 points in the game, like the New York Knicks. But 100 points by himself in one game. What people often overlook and forget about that night is that one of the main reasons that he scored over 100 points is because he made 28 out of 32 free throws that night. That's 87.5% of his free throws. Now, why is that a big deal? The average NBA player makes 75% of his free throws. Wilt Chamberlain was a terrible free throw shooter. For his career, he shot just about 50%. From the free throw line that's not good that's actually really bad but that night he shot 87.5 percent in fact that season the 1961-62 season his percentage of free throws made went up by 10 percent he made over 60 percent of his free throws that year well, why three words the granny shot does anybody know what the granny shot is Shooting the ball granny style, it's when you grab the ball and you hold it between your knees and you flick it up underhand. So most people shoot their free throws this way, but some people shoot their free throws that way. In fact, this is a picture of Rick Barry, who is most famous for shooting his free throws this way. He was a great NBA athlete also. Now, when Rick Barry finished his career in 1980, he finished as the best free throw shooter in the history of the NBA. He made 90% of his free throws over the course of his career, shooting it like that. So for one year, Wilt Chamberlain says, I'm going to do the same. And he makes 60% of his free throws. On this incredible night, he makes almost 88% of his free throws. And so surely for the rest of his career, he shot his free throws like that, right? No. The very next year, he goes back to shooting overhand and back to being a terrible free throw shooter. Now, why? We know why, because in his own autobiography, this is Wilt Chamberlain's own words. I felt silly. I felt like a sissy shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. I know some of the best foul shooters in the world in the history shot that way. I just couldn't do it. So even though he's costing himself and his team points and possibly victories, he won't shoot his free throws that way, even though it's going to be better for him because of how it's going to make him look. Now, I came across this story listening to Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History. In season one, there's an episode called The Big Man Can't Shoot. And you should listen to that episode just so you can hear Rick Berry go off. I mean, Rick Berry hears this quote about Wilt Chamberlain and he gets indignant. I mean, he is angry. It's the unpardonable sin to him that somebody wouldn't shoot in a way that's gonna score more points and help his team win just because how he worked. And when you listen to Rick Berry, he is so furious because he's the ultimate competitor. Rick Berry wants to win at any cost. Now, what does this have to do with adoring and worshiping work? Everything, actually. Think about it. Rick Berry, he worshiped the outcome of his work, even though he was mocked for the manner in which he did it. You better believe he got made fun of at times for shooting underhanded, but he didn't care because the controlling desire was the outcome of his work, that he'd be a winner and that he would make more free throws. Now, some of you resonate with that. You're a Rick Barry in the room. You say, I totally get what Rick is saying. But some of you are more like Will Chamberlain, who worshiped the manner in which he did his work, even though it negatively affected the outcome of his work. So in other words, one was willing to look like a loser in order to be a winner, and one so badly wanted to look like a winner that he was willing to be a loser. And what you have here is two different sets of idols and gods. They're worshiping two different things. And what happens when you worship something is very simple. It becomes a desire that dominates you. And it controls you. And when you worship work, it can control you. A work is a good thing, right? And we've spent a lot of time establishing that. It's a good thing. But you know what? It's not a God thing. And that's the biggest difference. It's the good things in our lives that are at the greatest risk of becoming the God things in our lives. When work becomes a God thing, it will dominate you. And it's not just worshiping work, but it's worshiping what work brings to you, meaning, status, wealth, security, a sense of purpose. Is this you? Let me give you some ways that you know that you're in danger of adoring work. You You don't know who you are apart from your work. You can't walk away from work. You can't turn your mind off. The happenings at work have great power over your emotional well-being. You are jealous of others in the same line of work who seem beyond you or better than you. You comfort yourself by looking down on those who aren't as far along as you are in your career. You are a slave to work or what to wor- or to what work provides for you. So to summarize this whole second point, it's simply this. We were created to worship through work, but not to worship our work. Two equal but opposite errors. Because work can't ultimately bring us what we need most. What do we need most? The humankind. What do we need most? Steadfast peace, lasting joy, meaning, and value apart from what we can do. You're never going to find your worth and value apart from what you can do by looking to work. Work only gives you another way of measuring up. And those things that I just said, peace, joy, meaning, value, apart from what you can do, those things are found in Christ. All right, so lastly this morning, why we work, how we get work wrong, and third, how can we get work right? And the way we get work right is we have to see two things. The first thing we have to see is how much God values work. And this is going to be quick because we've been talking about this. But God values work so much that like he reveals himself first as a worker. God revealed values work so much that he didn't plant the garden, really, until there was a human there to take care of it. That's how much he values work. And God values work so much that on the seventh day he rested. Why? Because he was tired? No, our God does not grow weary. He was not tired. So why does God rest on day seven? Because he was satisfied with his work. And he took a day just to enjoy his work. And so work is good, and God values work. But also, we have to see not just how much God values work, how much God values you. Adam and Eve, after the fall, chapter three, if we keep reading, this is a familiar story. Adam and Eve sin, they rebel against God, and sin and shame enters the world. And here's the very first verse after Adam and Eve take that fateful bite of that piece of fruit or whatever that was. It says this, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sowed fig leaves together, and made themselves cloths. This idea of nakedness is actually a really big idea in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. In two weeks, we're going to talk about it. But for now, let me just say this. What are Adam and Eve doing in this verse? They're taking the leaves. Now, where did they get the leaves from? The garden. What were they asked to do with the garden? To work it, to tend it, to keep it, to leave it better and they found it. And now they're ripping leaves off of plants, off of trees to cover themselves. What does this mean? Adam and Eve, in this story here, they are using their work, what they were supposed to be doing for work. They're using their work to try to cover themselves. They're using their work to do for them what only God could do for them, to cover their nakedness. Now, it's not just physical nakedness. It's spiritual nakedness. It's this vulnerability. It's this constant nagging feeling of inadequacy that I'm not good enough, that I haven't done enough, that I don't measure up, that if people really knew me, they wouldn't accept me. And so we turn to our work and we fill our lives with work thinking I can use my work to cover all that up. But the work of covering ourselves is the one work you and I can't do. We can't cover ourselves. There's not enough leaves in the world to cover our spiritual nakedness. And so what is God's solution? Look how much he values us. Verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin, and he clothed them. He covered them. But here's what you can't miss. In order to make them garments of skin, do you know what had to happen? An animal had to die. There had to be a sacrifice. Blood had to be shed. And right from the very beginning of the Bible, we learn this powerful truth that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. That there's no covering for you or I unless there's a sacrifice. And many, many, many years later, Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, comes to earth. He lives the life we should have lived. And then he dies the death we should have died. And he becomes the perfect sacrifice. And his blood shed for you and me, it covers our spiritual nakedness. It covers our shame. It covers our inadequacies. It covers our inabilities. Jesus' work can cover you as we trust and hope in him. Last thought this morning. Jesus' work gives you rest so that now you know that your work can be done in two ways. Number one, with the joy of knowing it matters. Your work matters. And number two, with the freedom of knowing it doesn't define you. Your work matters, yes, but it doesn't define you. It doesn't make you a value and worth that was settled at the cross, that was settled with the work of Jesus on our behalf who came to be the sacrifice to shed his blood to cover you and me. Let's pray together this morning.